This morning is going to be a little bit of a different, uh, more, more heavy teaching than what I would typically do on a Sunday morning. I try to distinguish between teaching and preaching, and I try to do more preaching on Sunday mornings and leave the teaching for more classroom or, or small group setting. So this morning is going to be a little more teaching oriented. Um, but what I, what I also want to do this morning is provide an overview of the book, which I've never done here before, whenever we've preached through the book of the Bible. And I've tried to stay away from that because a lot of times that gets real dry in sermons. It's good material and it's good for classroom setting. It's good for you to study and it's good to know. But I try to keep that stuff out of a sermon um, because it's just, I just don't like to do that. And I think you can find that at the front of your study Bibles or a good commentary. And a lot of times with our other books that we've studied, I've been able to just include that in the first sermon. Leviticus is not going to be able to, to be like that because we're not doing verse by verse in Leviticus. That would just be a long sermon series and that would be hard to maintain um, if we were to look at every single law in the book of Leviticus. That would be very hard. So we're really going to be taking a, a, a flyby Leviticus and we're going to do this in eight sermons. And so um, besides today, there'll then be seven more and we're going to break it in larger chunks. So for instance, next week's sermon is based on chapters 1 through 7. And then the next one after that will be based on chapters 8 through 10. And then one after that from chapters 11 through 15. Then the one after that just chapter 16 because it's really important. And then right after that, um, then we'll go large chunks and then we'll, we'll have a few on the end where we're going to look at maybe some specific laws that, that might be fun to look at. But that's going to be how we approach that. So being that that's the case, I want to provide a context for why are we even bothering looking at Leviticus? Why, why, do we, why do we even bother studying Leviticus? And by the way, am I, am I on? You're, you can hear me just fine. Okay. I just want to make sure. It, it, yeah, okay. Um, so, just, you know, I didn't want to go the whole sermon and nobody has been a friend to me. You know, that type of friend where when you get food on your face and they actually tell you? I had someone do that for me this week. And he did it a little quicker than I, I needed because I had just taken a bite of the chips and salsa. And as I was pulling the chip back, he goes, you got a little salsa right there. And I'm like, all right, dude. Thanks. I see what kind of person you are. You're a real friend. This is our first date, you know. I mean, just first time meeting. <laughs> Leviticus talks about that. I'm sorry. No, this is our first time meeting anyway. But then I had another guy that I had breakfast with this week. And, you know, um, you, you, some of you guys do face wipes. You won't admit it, but you do face wipes to clean your face and whatever. Well, I did that, but I hadn't shaved that morning. And then I had some fuzz on my neck. <laughs> I went through the entire breakfast and didn't know that. Got to my truck, saw my reflection. I had fuzz on my neck. I texted dude and said, what kind of friend are you? You let me go through all the breakfast with fuzz on my neck. All right, so that's the inside point. I didn't want you to be that kind of person. All right, so Leviticus. Why are we even bothering to study? Because this is, one, it's Old Testament. Two, it's law. And it seems so far removed from us. And if you're reading through the book of Leviticus, you, you find out that there's not a lot of story. There's not a lot of narrative. It's law. And there's like two of you in this room right now who like to read law. That's it. And you may not even like it. I may be making some assumptions right now. But, but most of us don't sit down and enjoy reading this kind of literature. And so it's hard. So why, why even bother? So there's a few things I want to I I put before you as we consider Leviticus. Um, but just because there's going to be a lot I'm going to throw at you, I'm going to put this before you twice today. This is what I want you to get ultimately from today and as you consider the book of Leviticus. Because God is holy, His people must be holy. Because God is holy... His people must be holy. Alright, so, so as we consider Leviticus, why? 
Why preach from Leviticus? So I jump to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul gives me at least two verses that, that instruct me that there's good reason for us to look at Leviticus from, from, from his perspective. The first one comes from Romans chapter 15 verse 4. For everything that was written in former times, and Paul has just quoted a psalm in this context, and then he says this, for everything that was written in former times, everything, okay, everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction. Now he's writing this to a New Testament church. It was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. So Paul's perspective as he was writing to this church in Rome after he just finished quoting a verse from the Old Testament was, hey, listen, you need to heed this, pay attention to it, because everything that was written in the former times was written for our instruction. He didn't just say the Psalms were written for our instruction. You know, sometimes we'll get a New Testament that has Psalms and Proverbs tacked onto it. Now, he's not saying just Psalms and Proverbs. He's saying everything. And then again, 2 Timothy, see, he didn't change his perspective toward the end of his life because when he's writing to Timothy when Paul was in prison and about to be put to death, he reminded Timothy of the same thing. Every scripture. Now, by the way, when Paul would write this, the New Testament was currently being written. And the New Testament was not the New Testament. There were letters that were circulating. There were gospels that were circulating. But the New Testament, the 27 books that we call the New Testament, that had not been codified together. That had not been put together in book form yet. So when Paul's writing scripture, he, he does include some letters, but he is primarily, primarily leaning on Old Testament scriptures. And so he says to Timothy, every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So Paul's perspective is that the Old Testament also has purpose for us in the New Testament times. That the Old Testament also has room for us to be instructed by, to be equipped by. So we should not cannot, must not neglect the Old Testament, which is why here I, I've tried to have a pattern of we go through a book of the Bible. I know why I sound weird. You guys are those people. Excuse me while I put my microphone on my ear in front of you. Can we just start from the beginning, cut the video? We're just going to try that all again. You got some fuzz on your <laughs> Oh, I'm like, what's that rustling sound going on? I know it's, sorry, Jimmy. I'm probably making your job hard back there. I'm sorry. <sighs> Leviticus does not address that. All right. So we should not neglect the Old Testament, just like we should not forget to put a microphone on your ear. All right, yeah, it is so much better. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so this is why we, we, we are going to the Old Testament, because it has purpose and it has uh, instruction for us. Now, that being the case, we cannot read the Old Testament the same way we would read the book of Romans that Paul wrote. We cannot read the book of Leviticus the same way we would read the Gospel of Mark. 
There are some things that we have a perspective on that when the book of Leviticus was written by Moses, they did not have the full perspective that we have. So they were writing the book of, Moses was writing the book of Leviticus before the cross, before Christ showed up on the scene. Moses had no concept that we have of a Jesus of Nazareth, a God-man. He didn't have that. He knew God was going to provide someone, a prophet like him, but he didn't know that Jesus was going to look like he did, come like he did, be the type of person that he was. He didn't have that fullness of revelation that we get as we look back. He didn't even have that fullness of revelation that the people in the gospels were getting as Jesus was living right before them, right? And so Jesus would then help his people understand how they should now understand their Old Testament. Not that they need to change necessarily the way they've been reading it, but they need to understand what it has been pointing to, Christ. And so as believers, as New Testament people, people who are living after the cross, we have to read the Old Testament with a view and a lens that Christ has already come. And all that's in the Old Testament ultimately has been pointing us to him. So we can't go to the Old Testament and read it as if he has not already come, that God's Messiah, God's promised one, the one who fulfills the law, the one in whom the law is ended for those who believe. We cannot go and read the law like Leviticus as if he hasn't come. Amen. Okay? So we are going to read it as, as through that lens. And so in that way, this, these scriptures in Leviticus has instruction for us. And so that's one of my primary goals is as we go through the book of Leviticus, and hopefully you're going to read it. Okay, so there's reading plans out there on the credenza across from the bathrooms. It's on Facebook. And I sent it out through email last night. If you did not start reading it already, just try to get through chapter seven by next week and you'll be good. <laughs> or just start reading and then just see where you get because there's going to be some weeks where you're only reading one chapter so you can catch up all right but that way you kind of get a feel for what i'm doing an overview on so this is why we're going to read leviticus and and go through it and then there's two things that before i i'm going to switch gears here and i'm going to show you a video that's going to help give you a broad understanding of leviticus there's two things that i want you to take away this morning and i'm going to try to keep before you when you read through leviticus or deuteronomy or anything that has law one, the law reveals the character of God to us. You cannot read through the book of Leviticus. You cannot read through a book like Deuteronomy. You cannot read through laws that, that have all these details of what you should and shouldn't do and not walk away going, wow, God is holy because his character is revealed in what he values. And what he values is revealed in the things he's instructing his people in the Old Testament to do and not do. But at the same time, we have to understand that the law was written and given to a people in a particular time and a particular culture. And there are going to be some laws that we could easily go, well, that still applies today. We have a culture like that. And there's going to be other laws we're going, that makes absolutely no sense. And so what we've got to understand is these laws were given to Moses directly from God to a people going into a specific land surrounded by a specific group of people in a certain specific time of history and they were given so that his people would know how to live in the presence of a holy God and how to be a witness to all those other nations to this holy God. And so the culture is reflected in the laws. God gave specific laws in a specific culture. So the, the, the trap would be for you and I to read this and go, I've got to submit my life and live by these laws. You don't. Because Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. 
and we're going to talk about how that plays out. But you and I are free to eat shrimp. You and I are free to eat bacon and pork tenderloin or whatever it is that you enjoy eating that Leviticus would condemn. That has been fulfilled and done away with. You and I are free to wear mixed uh, uh, clothing that has mixed garments and, and, and materials. You don't have to just wear pure cotton. Thank the Lord, right? You can, you can wear the different things that you're wearing and you don't have to submit yourself. Um, one of the ones that I think will probably address is tattoos. You're free to get tattoos if your motive is okay. Let me just put that out there as a teaser. Ooh, okay. And so um, you're free to, to, to do these things that Leviticus might say not, but you have to understand that the motive makes a difference. The, the character of God is at stake in the book of Leviticus, and that hasn't changed for us in the New Testament times. So the character of God, his holiness, is revealed in the book of Leviticus, in the law. All right, and then uh, the, the second thing that I, that I want you to know is Leviticus was given not as a means for salvation. The law was given by God to a group of people and it was never intended to be obeyed in order to earn salvation. Because Leviticus falls on the heels of Exodus. And what happens in Exodus? God redeems his people out of slavery and creates a people for himself. They are now receiving the law in Leviticus after having already been redeemed by God as a people of his own. And so the book of Leviticus and the law is not about how to be saved how to be accepted by God. It's about how to live in the presence of the holy God who has already redeemed you. Leviticus and the law is a response to what God has done and who he is. And I'm gonna keep that before you throughout the entire book. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I wanna shift gears for a minute and uh, take us to, it's about six and a half minute video, but it's gonna give you a good overview of the book of Leviticus. And then we'll come back and finish, finish our part. So Jake. The book of Leviticus, we know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us. So he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals, the second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. 
Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed, that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. 
But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. Was that video helpful as an overview? All right, you can find that video at thebibleproject.com along with many other videos, overviews of books of the Bible, uh, biblical topics. um, And they make those things free as a resource and available. So utilize uh, some of that stuff if you like. So, all right, so there's an overview. So here's where I'd like to to wrap this up as we, we go here. Remind you, Because God is holy, his people must be holy. Because God is holy, his people must be holy. All right, so so if you just think with me real briefly about the story of the Bible from the beginning, God has a purpose to create a people for himself. Genesis 1 through 11, we see creation, all is good, and then sin enters into that creation and corrupts it, and then ultimately God's creation rebels against him, and we see God's plan of restoration start to play out. Genesis chapter 12, uh, through the end of Genesis, we see God's plan to work through a specific person come into play with Abraham, where he makes a promise and a covenant to Abraham that I'm going to work through you, I'm going to give you many descendants, I'm going to give you a land, and then through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. All right, and so we start to see that, that promise passed on from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, and from Jacob through his sons, which ultimately became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see that God's purpose to create a people was that he would create a people who would then live in his presence and be a witness to all the other people of the world so that ultimately God was never excluding types of people from his, his kingdom. God always included, uh, always intended to include a variety of types of people, not just Jewish people, but people all of tribes and nations. He always intended that, but his purpose was to work through a people. And the people in this case in the Old Testament was Israel, Abraham's family. And the, as Israel was going to be living in the presence of this holy God and, and interact with, interacting with him, they would also then be witnesses to all these other nations who worshipped a variety of different gods. And so the other nations, the, the, the intention was the other nations would see this God that Israel worships, he does things that their gods don't do. And he does not require his people to do things like they do. Think about, um, if you're familiar with your Bible a little bit, you might remember Elijah on the, 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 the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, this prophet of God and these prophets of a false god, Baal. And there's a competition that takes place. Let's put some wood on the altar and then, and then some other things on the altar and let's douse it with water, like ridiculously so with water. And then let's call upon our God to receive the offering and see who responds. 
right? And so the, the way that the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal respond, do you, do you remember how they try to get their God's attention when their gods don't respond and receive the offering? They start cutting themselves so that they can try to invoke their God's sympathy, their God's mercy, their God's compassion, show their devotion to their God, and that maybe their God would respond to that. The God of the Bible would never require that. Never. And so Elijah calls upon God and God is shown to be the true and living God. And so what was supposed to happen was as these people of Israel lived before God, others would see, man, this God is kind, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's just, like he takes sin seriously, but he's not like our gods and we don't have to manipulate him like we do our gods. And so that was God's plan and creating a people for himself. And so, but you know, Israel didn't, didn't follow through. They got into the land and they became rebellious and they chased after those other gods. But that doesn't mess up the fact that God has a purpose to create a people. In fact, I'm gonna take you back to Exodus for a minute. I'm sorry, Leviticus first. And so, so in the first verse of Leviticus, the way the book opens up is the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent. Maybe you picked up on this in the video. He spoke to him from the tent. And then if you get to the end of Leviticus and you start the next book, Numbers, Numbers starts out this way. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. And so that helps us to understand, see, because Exodus, at the second half of Exodus, the tabernacle is set up. The, the people are redeemed out of Israel. They're brought into the desert. The tabernacle, this portable tent is set up and there is where God's presence is gonna dwell among his people. But God speaks to Moses from the inside the tent while Moses is outside the tent. So the question becomes, how do you live in the presence of a holy God? And Leviticus answers that question. And by the time we get to numbers, that question has been answered. How does God's people live in his holy presence? Well, by numbers, we see that God is now speaking to Moses inside the tent. That's the purpose of Leviticus. How do sinful people live before a holy God? And that's a New Testament problem as well. All right, we go on. Not only has God got a purpose to create a people, but God's people are a kingdom of priests. And so Exodus now, chapter 19, verse five and six, God has called his people out of Egypt. He's redeemed them, done all the 10 plagues. And now he's bringing them to Mount Sinai where he's going to enter into the covenant with them, which is really like a wedding ceremony. And so this is really where God is, is betrothing himself to Israel, where he's making that covenant with them. And so as he's there, he says this to them, Exodus 19, verse five, and now if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations for all the earth is mine and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So Moses was going to pass that on. You will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. How does a group of sinful people become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? That's the book of Leviticus. That's why the law was partly given, was so that people would know, how do I live in the presence of a holy God even though I am sinful? Because I cannot just approach him. I cannot just approach God. I will be zapped because of my sin. Holiness is required 
because God is holy, God's people must be holy. But how do I get holy? How does the people in Israel and in the Old Testament, how do they become holy? And the same question is true of us today. How do we become holy so that we can enter into the presence of God? Because this is what God required of them. Here's several verses from Leviticus. Leviticus 11:44, the first part. God says, for I am the Lord your God and you are to sanctify, a word that means set yourself apart or make holy. You are to sanctify yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Look at Leviticus 19, verse two. He says to Moses, speak to the whole congregation of the Israelites and tell them, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse seven. You must sanctify yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. You must be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the other peoples to be mine. Because God is holy, God's people must be holy. That's the expectation. You cannot have sinful people living in sin representing a holy God. And you can't have sinful people living in sin that is uncovered, that is unforgiven, that's not dealt with, entering into the presence of God. Which is why Leviticus starts the first seven chapters with sacrifices how to do sacrifices and what sacrifices are appropriate when because we have to start there how do i enter in and so god explains sacrifice sin requires death sin serious it's not to be taken lightly because God is all glorious, all holy, the supreme creator. No one is greater than him. Then to offend his glory is the, the highest offense you can make and it's deserving of death. And the fact that sinful people are, are allowed to continue to live is his pure grace. He would be totally justified like he did in the flood to completely wipe everything out. And yet even in the flood and his destruction and his just wrath towards sin, we see his grace because eight people were saved through the flood and through there God started over. Sacrifices. Something has to die because of sin. But God institutes in the law sacrifice, which by the way is grace. Because God is making a way in his law, which you and I tend to look at as a burden, which you and I tend to look at as being uh, free of grace, but yet all throughout the law, we see grace because this is the same God that you and I know from the New Testament. He's not different. There's nothing about him that is different now than what we read about in Leviticus. Nothing is different. God cannot change. But what has changed is the way that God relates to people because of the covenants, the promises that he has made and the sacrifice that has taken place. And so even in the law in Leviticus, sacrifices are God's grace because sacrifices are the way if you sin, you should be dead. But if you sin, the law provides a means for you to be restored in your relationship to God. God doesn't have to do that. And yet one through seven tells us about all these chapters of sin, about how to do sacrifices. Chapters eight through 10 deal with the priests because someone has to intercede on behalf of God to people and on behalf of people to God. That's the priest. That's the role of a priest. And so a priest is someone who has to be able to enter into the presence of God so that he can represent the people to God and then represent God to the people. So how do the priests then become holy? Sacrifices. 
sacrifices. And so you'll see as you read through that the priests, before they entered the presence of God and before they offered sacrifice on behalf of people, had to offer it on behalf of themselves first. And yet God in, the, in Exodus told his people, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. How is a group of people going to be able to represent God to the rest of the world and represent the rest of the world to God as a kingdom of priests unless they can become holy? <sighs> Sacrifices. And then, of course, all the different laws about moral purity and, and how to live are so that, that you can represent the character of God, right? Because you must be holy because I am holy. God's people, God's priests must be holy. Why does that matter to us? Because you, if you've trusted in Christ, if you're part of the church with a capital C, you are God's priests, it's not just Israel. See, the apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you yourselves as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later, but you, believers in Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. Do you recognize the language? He goes on and says, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. This matters to us because God has called the church to be his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, his people that are his own possession that he has redeemed who then represent God to the rest of the world because God's promise to Abraham is continuing on. It continued on through Christ, who is the fulfillment of that promise, and now the representatives of Christ, who is the church. You and I are called to be a holy people, but how do we, who are sinful, live in the presence of a holy God? Everything in Leviticus points us to Christ. Because you and I don't gather today and offer sacrifices of bulls and goats because we don't have to. Every time you and I sin, we don't have to return back to a temple or an altar and slay another animal. Why? Because all of those sacrifices in Leviticus point us to the one sacrifice that lasts forever. The one sacrifice that was eternal. The one sacrifice that was absolutely perfect and satisfied all the wrath of God towards his people and their sin in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Every sacrifice in Leviticus points us to the sacrifice that God made through Christ on the cross. You and I become holy when we trust in Christ and we get his righteousness that he earned, not anything in us. I mean, if you were to try to live by the law, you would become very aware very quickly how sinful you are. Me too, of course, all of us. It's impossible for us to live lives that are holy apart from God and apart from the righteousness that Christ gives to us as we believe in him. And so you are a chosen nation, a priest, holy. And because God is holy, his people must be holy. And so I'm going to sum up Leviticus this way as we kind of wrap this up. If you're someone this morning who's not trusted in Christ, here's what I think we're going to see as we go through Leviticus and what I hope you hear this morning is God is a God who desires to be known by his creation. And God is a God who is not distant.
distant and who has not remained distant, but has involved himself in history so that people can know him. And the highest thing that you can pursue in your life and the greatest gift that you ever will receive is to be able to know God. And you are not born knowing him in the way that you were designed and created to know him. Because sin has impacted that for every single person. And God would be just in condemning all sinful people. And yet God is a God who is gracious and kind and compassionate and has extended his grace to undeserving people that they might, through the sacrifice that he himself has made for you through Christ, they might know him as they were designed and created and intended to know him and then be known by him. And Leviticus points us to that. That sacrifice has been made for you so that you can stop living that life that you will fail miserably at every time if you try to impress God and earn his acceptance. You can't. None of us can. And God stood in our place through Christ. If you've trusted in Christ this morning, you need to know that same sacrifice has provided the means for you that even after you've trusted in Christ, you're not done dealing with sin. And just because you've struggled with sin, you don't have to go and try to impress God or earn his favor. You're a child of God who's been purchased by the sacrifice of Christ. And that sacrifice has covered your sins past, present, and future. You cannot earn God's favor. So don't try even after you've trusted in Christ. Instead, trust the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. When we talk about verses in the New Testament like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guess what, believer? That forgiveness is yours already. The confession is for you to agree with God so that you can then just walk in the forgiveness that's already been purchased for you. Because what happens to us as believers is instead of walking in the light, we hide in the darkness and we can't walk in the forgiveness that Christ purchased for us. So confessing that sin is I agree with God about it being sin. I call it what it is. And by doing so, I'm now walking in the light before God, open, honest, vulnerable, and I can receive the forgiveness that he purchased for me. I don't have to ask him and convince him to give it to me. It's mine in Christ. But so many of us don't live in it. So many of us don't walk in it because we'd rather hide in the dark. And then when we do come out, try to, try to live our lives in a way that convinces God that we're worthy of that. And you're not. And I'm not. And we will fail miserably every time. But that same sacrifice that Christ uh, died on the cross, not just to purchase salvation, but to keep us and to continue to grow us, to make us holy. And then the third thing I'd say is, as a church, as, as a community, as people who trust in Christ, and that includes many of you, but maybe it doesn't include all of you. So I'm speaking to you if, if as a church, as a group of people who have been trusted, have trusted in Christ, we are called to be God's holy nation. A group of people who are holy because our God is holy, who then represent him to all the other people in the world. We cannot be an inward-facing group of people. It's not God's point. God's point is live before me in my presence because of Christ and then live that way in all that you do because Leviticus will show you there is absolutely no area of your life that is untouched by God's holiness. It addresses everything 
relationships, um, food, eating. I mean, and, and while we may not have to follow all of those today because of the cultural differences, what it shows us is that no area of your life should be untouched by God's holiness. You cannot follow Christ and keep one section of your life private from him. You cannot follow Christ and say, all these areas, God, yours, but this one's mine. Can't do it. Can't do it. As a church, we are to be a people who are living holy lives in Christ because what Christ does is a response to who he is and what he's done and that it might draw other people to Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Because God is holy, his people must be holy. So let's take a moment, ask God, what has my name on it this morning, God? What are you trying to say to me this morning that I might hear that? trusted in Christ, that you would open their eyes to understand your love demonstrated through the death of Christ, a sacrifice for their sin so that they would not endure the wrath of God because Jesus himself endured it for them. That they would then respond to your grace and your love by trusting in Christ. To stop trusting in whatever it is they're trusting in and instead to turn and trust in Christ. God, for those who have done that, God, I pray that you would stir up our hearts' affections for you, that we would not be cold or apathetic, that we would not allow idols into our hearts, that we would not worship other things over you, the God who has redeemed us from the slavery of sin, who has set us free, not so that we can then go live lives to try to prove our worthiness to be set free, but instead live free lives in response to your grace and your holiness that we have been set free from sin and the slavery of sin, so now we willingly enslave ourselves to you, the God who has set us free, because there's no greater thing than to live for you. So God, would you stir up our hearts' affections for you? And as a church, as a group of people, God, would you help us to live holy lives and empower us by your spirit to do that which comes so unnaturally to us, so supernaturally empower us by your spirit to live lives that are holy so that we reflect you, God, who are holy. Not that we would communicate a message to others that you have to clean up, you have to get perfect in order to be accepted. No, but instead to communicate that message that God takes imperfect, unclean, unholy people and he, he deals with the sin himself so that he can create a people for himself who are clean, who are holy, and that one day Christ himself will be able to present to the Father and say, here she is, the bride. 
us be a church that represents that well. We pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, see you next week.